I would say, I would argue that if uh, we would like to take a snapshot of where Indonesia's democracy uh, is right now, I would say that the current democracy in Indonesia uh, cannot be separated from its democratic transition. And it is still in its democratic transition. Although that we have started our reform, political reform, uh, in 1998, 1999, let's say 2000, it's already, already nine, 19 years. Uh, so people ask me, 19 years, Bagus, and we're still in democratic transition? I would say yes. This is a special live event edition of Indonesia In-Depth. I'm Sean Corrigan. Indonesia began its transition to democracy in 1998 amid a simultaneous political, social, and economic crisis. While the country has made some tremendous progress with important economic and political reforms, Indonesia continues to remain in that democratic transition today. In this Indonesianist event, held by the Indonesian Ministry of Foreign Affairs in October 2019, retired Army Lieutenant General Agus Wijoyo, Dr. Michael Vatakiotis, Dr. Siswo Pramono, and myself, Sean Corrigan, discuss Indonesia's path to democracy and the challenges that remain. Honorable panelists, distinguished participants, ladies and gentlemen, we would like to welcome you to the second day of the World Indonesianist Congress, Building a Better Future of Indonesia Toward a Tolerant, Vibrant, and Creative Society. This event is held by the Policy Analysis and Development Agency, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Indonesia. Honorable panelists and distinguished participants, we welcome you to the first session. This first session features presentation from His Excellency Legend TNI Purnawirawan Agus Wijoyo, the Governor of Lemhanas. His Excellency, Siswo, Bapak Siswo Pramono, the Head of Policy Analysis and Development Agency, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Indonesia. Dr. Michael Vatikiotis, Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. Mr. Corrigan Sean, Indonesia In-Depth Podcast on the topic of strengthening democracy. Presentations and discussion of the first session shall be moderated by Bapak Imade Andi Arsana, PhD. To Bapak Andi Arsana, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Uh, let us talk about uh, democracy. The, the simplest definition of democracy probably a government that by the people, from the people, and for the people. And Indonesia has been known as the third largest democracy in the world after India and the United States. Uh, for some of you, uh, Indonesia has been a democracy probably since you're very young or probably since you're born. Uh, but believe me that Indonesia is actually a very young democracy. So not, not uh, a little bit more than 20 years ago, for example, Indonesia was an authoritarian country. And uh, we had a long-serving president who was in the power for more than 30 years. And Indonesia went through a very difficult time, uh, economic crisis back in 1997, 1998, that led to a very chaotic situation in Indonesia. I was a student back then. Uh, a reform took place uh, as the consequence of those uh, very chaotic situations. Uh, 
back then, uh, the world was not very positive about Indonesia. Uh, many were very pessimistic, and many even predicted that Indonesia would have been balkanized, uh, broken down into small pieces. But we have proven that they were wrong. As you see today, that Indonesia uh, remains as one nation, and even stronger than before. Uh, we actually uh, elected our first president directly only six years after the lowest point of Indonesia in 2004, if you remember. And this year, we uh, did the fourth direct election to define the destiny of our uh, country. So uh, a lot has happened in Indonesia, uh, a lot of progress, but certainly a lot of things to learn, a lot of things to improve also in Indonesia, especially the history of uh, democracy, the problems, the concern, and especially the, uh, the future of the democracy. So now uh, we are going to talk about that. So uh, welcome to the first session of the World Indonesianist Congress Strengthening Democracy. Thank you. Uh, my name is Imadi Andi Arsana. Now I would like to uh, kindly invite the governor of the National Resilience Institute, or LEMHANAS, uh, Lieutenant General Tani Purnawirawan, Bapak Agus Wijoyo. Monggo, Pak Agus, uh, And the second speaker uh, is podcaster, uh, so millennials. Uh, he is also a business or political risk uh, consultant based in uh, Jakarta, in Indonesia. So please welcome Mr. Sean Corrigan, please. <clears throat> welcome, Sean. Thank you very much. Please have a seat. Uh, the third speaker is a journalist, an American journalist living in Singapore. He has been living in this uh, region for, I think, around three decades, so he knows a lot about the region, especially Indonesia. Uh, please welcome uh, Dr. Michael Fatikiotis. Please, I try to remember his name. Selamat datang, Pak Michael. Thank you very much. And the last but not least, uh, uh, he is the head of the Policy Analyst, Analysis and Development Agency, or PADA, of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Indonesia. Please welcome Dr. Siswo Pramono. Monggo, Pak Siswo. We have uh, Lieutenant General retired Agus Wijoyo here with us. Uh, I, let me read. He is currently the governor of the National Resilience Institute, Olem Hanas of Indonesia. Uh, Previously, he was the vice chairman of MPR in Indonesia, uh, and also the Republic of Indonesia Tentara Nasional Indonesia's chief of territorial affairs. Uh, Pak Agus is regarded as one of the TNI's leading intellectuals. And during his appointments as commandant of Armed Force Staff Colleague, or uh, SESCOAD, he was responsible for restructuring the political and security doctrine of TNI. Under his leadership, also TNI decided to withdraw his presence in the politics, especially in the parliament and MPR also. Uh, Pak Agus is served, sorry, Pak Agus also served as a member of uh, Indonesia Timor-Leste Commission of Truth and Friendship. He's a senior fellow uh, of CSIS in Indonesia and was a visiting senior fellow of Institute of Defense and Strategic Studies in Singapore. As an intellectual, uh, Pak Agus uh, has written numerous uh, articles on security issues in Asia-Pacific region. And today he's uh, going to tell us his view on strengthening democracy in Indonesia. Pak Agus, the floor is yours. 
Thank you. Please give a big round of applause to Pa Agus. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Moderator, and very good morning to all of you. My presentation, uh, I will name it uh, Understanding uh, Indonesia from its uh, transition into democracy. Uh, first of all is that I would like to give a, an idea of the backdrop of uh, how Indonesian became to the, to the present Indonesia or the status of the current Indonesia. Uh, then also to understand the present day Indonesia, uh, we also have to be able to understand where Indonesia came from. So that would be my next part of the presentation. Then what are the challenges and what are the way forward? And uh, as I am facing uh, an audience of an educated, very highly educated audience, uh, I would like also to give the impression to be educated. So the keynotes, the keywords for my presentation would be one is democratic transition, second is culture, and third is globalization. Uh, next, where does Indonesia come from? I would say, I would argue that if uh, we would like to take a snapshot of where Indonesia's democracy uh, is right now, I would say that the current democracy in Indonesia uh, cannot be separated from its democratic transition. And it is still in its democratic transition. Although that we have started our reform, political reform, uh, in 1998, 1999, let's say 2000, it's already, already nine, 19 years. Uh, so people ask me, 19 years, Bagus, and we're still in democratic transition? I would say yes. Because how we pass democratic transition and becoming democratic consolidation is up to us, up to the Indonesian society. And what is the criteria? Uh, I would go by Huan Lin's uh, criteria, and that is that when democracy is the only game in town for everybody, then I would say we have passed democratic transition. Uh, right now, we see of what you read in the papers and what you see in the news, that not everybody in Indonesia already believe that democracy is the only game in town. Some segments of the society, some people still believe that the solution to differences, especially political differences, some would still believe in mobilizing the masses by intimidation, by political pressure, and so on. Uh, so uh, that is my argument that Indonesia is still in the democratic transition, which has a challenge to be promoted from a, a procedural uh, democracy into substantive uh, democracy. Next, that if we talk about democracy in Indonesia, uh, not because that I have a military background in my past, but I would say that uh, the role of the military in the Indonesian democratic transition is substantive. Uh, we go back that uh, I have my argument that the reform of the military made significant contribution to the, domestic tran uh, the democratic transition of Indonesia. And it was a self-initiated military reform. It was voluntarily initiated by the military themselves. And that is why that uh, it did not create uh, much of the dynamics, because the political elites were busy in themselves trying to find a succeeding or a replacement of a political system when President Suharto resigned. They forgot, in soccer we say, to mark the military. But uh, I think Indonesia was lucky to have a polite military. Sometimes I think it was too polite. Rather than in the vacuum of politics, 
that the military would jump to intervene in the political vacuum, they decided uh, to think about the future of Indonesia when Indonesia becomes democracy, what would be the role of a professional military? And how would the military, uh, would the political role of the military still be valid uh, in the future of Indonesian democracy? That was the question posed by the military uh, to themselves, and they decided that they have to come out with a concept of a professional military when Indonesia becomes more democratic. So it was a self-initiated reform. Uh, next, I would say that uh, the democratic transition would have something to do with culture, traditional culture of the uh, Indonesian people. And what are they? I would not pose it in an affirmative uh, sentence, but I would uh, pose it into a question, is it right that our culture is a paternalistic culture? And I think it is true to most of the Eastern cultures. And uh, that would be, the criteria of that would be, there is a tendency of relying on leaders. We just cannot live without leaders. Which we basically, is it not that basically our traditional culture, our traditional culture of sultanates, of kingdoms. So we always look up uh, to the king. And we always look for a king. We just cannot live without a king. So we tend to look for, for leaders. And uh, with that, actually, we are comfortable under authority because of the uh, premise or belief that the king has a divine right to rule uh, given by God, and everything that the king decides is always good for the people. So uh, to my opinion, that was the traditional uh, belief uh, in the traditional culture. Uh, what does it mean to democratic transition? that is not uh, automatically conformed to the democratic culture, where in democratic culture, it is individuality that concerns. But so that uh, we have to promote ourselves, the society, uh, from a paternalistic, communitarian culture into an uh, individualistic culture. But is that enough? No. Individualism without uh, responsibility can lead into anarchy. So we have to promote ourselves one level higher, and that is to responsible individuality. That is a daunting task for education, for the society. And basically, that is what, where the Indonesian society is right now. Uh, so it's, it's a matter of competition between culture and democratic culture. And uh, another which makes it more complicated, when we expect leaders, we expect perfect leaders, and we expect perfect leaders to be delivered by the process of democracy, in which democracy never promises that. So it's a mis-expectation. It's because that uh, most of the uh, public still expect perfect leaders to be delivered by democracy, whereas in democracy, if democracy has to take side between popularity and competence with perfect leaders, democracy would take side with popularity. That uh, is like a lightning uh, in the afternoon for the Indonesian society, and which some elements in the society is not aware of that yet. Why is it that uh, democracy takes side with popularity? Because the soul of democracy is people's sovereignty, meaning that any presidential election is not to vote or to elect the brightest president the most competent president. No. We are looking for a person 
who is constitutionally and legally uh, has the legality to say, I represent the aspiration uh, of the people. Uh, what are the challenges uh, for the Indonesian democracy? First is that uh, it is uh, in the race between globalization uh, as the meaning of the eroding influence of national sovereign sovereignty in the cyber world. Right now, in the time of globalization, when we say the eroding uh, borders of national sovereignty, it is not to mean physical geographical borders. It is meaning in the cyber world, meaning that any country cannot decide for themselves what they think is best for their interest. There is always an open border between the national, uh, the national interest and the international values. Uh, so that uh, what we are not aware also is that any nation, any country is open to global competition in the sense of ideology and culture. Uh, so there is always a competition of ideology, of ideas, uh, and that is what we are seeing not only in Indonesia, but also uh, in the world. And uh, those are the challenges. What are the way forward? First is that uh, we are lucky that we have our national values as our national capital. And what are they? First is that Indonesia's diversity is our uh, historical legacy. It can be a strength, but if it's not properly managed, it can be a challenge. Uh, and by that, we see also, uh, look back into history, that Indonesia is a nation based on consensus. Islam came, came here not by occupying the land. Also, in 1908-1928, nationalism was based on consensus. The national language of Indonesia is not based uh, on the largest ethnic group of Javanese, but it is based as the consensus, as the easiest language uh, to be spoken. Next is that also we have lessons to be taken from history, and also, as we have heard from the uh, Deputy Minister last night, that human capital is the focus of the national development in the next coming five years. Uh, so, what are actually the way forward? It is the effort, the challenge of strengthening and deepening of democracy. Uh, that would mean uh, strengthening of the national system, strengthening of the political institutions, uh, development of political parties, and what is most important to underline as the foundations of all those efforts are education, general education and political education. I thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pagus, for your very insightful presentation. All right, but thank you very much. Uh, uh, a small note on your uh, uh, speech. Uh, you mentioned about substantive democracy, which is very interesting, I think. And at the end, you, I think, somehow close with the fact that in uh, history, Indonesia is based on consensus, not based on the fact that the stronger or the bigger and then occupy the, the smaller or the weaker, which is, I think is a good point. And in democracy, you uh, very uh, rightly mentioned about human capital is the focus. So thank you very much once again, Pagus. Now, we would like to invite the second speaker, but let me uh, introduce uh, more about uh, Sean uh, Corrigan, uh, our friend living in Jakarta. He's an American. Uh, interestingly, is there any Dharma Siswa student here? Okay, you see your future already because he was the Dharma Siswa student back then in 1990s. So can we big a round of applause to <laughs> Sean? 
so uh, Sean came here in 1997. It's a very tough time. <laughs> and you became a student uh, with Dharma Siswa Scholarship, right? In uh, Universitas Indonesia, provided by Department of Education and Culture. Uh, so Sean witnessed uh, and documented firsthand the pro-democracy movement and the beginning of the reformacy period back then, so which uh, brought violent street demonstration, the occupation of the parliament building by students, and uh, President Suharto's resignation. So, so I uh, I'm happy, to, not really happy, but I would like to mention that I was one of them back then in 1998. So these events commanded his interest in Indonesian politics uh, ever since. Uh, he returned to Indonesia uh, in early 2000s, working in Jakarta as a political or business risk consultant, advising MNCs on government policy, regulations, and issues for over 13 years now. Uh, he established the Indonesia In-Depth Podcast Program uh, uh, to increase awareness of, uh, and understanding of Indonesian politics and culture for English-speaking uh, audience. And the program, by the way, is available on Spotify and all uh, podcast apps. As a foreigner who uh, witnessed the transformation of Indonesia from an authoritarian into a fully functioning democracy, Sean certainly has a lot uh, to say. So uh, you have now five minutes to tell uh, your story. Uh, Sean, a uh, big applause to Sean, please. Thank you. <coughs> Hello, yes. and uh, thank you for having me, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I think also maybe the Department of Education and Culture, who may be here. I think first I would like to thank um, the Department of Education and Culture, Deb Dickbud, for allowing me to have the educational experience from 1997 to 2000. Uh, it was one of the most insightful and educational experiences that I've had, so I would like to thank them. As pa Eddie uh, already explained, that I was here in 1997 as a student. Uh, for the topic today, it's uh, strengthening democracy. And I think to really think about what that means, you have to have a starting point which you want to measure it. And for me, uh, it goes back to 1997 when I was a student at the University of Indonesia studying Bahasa Indonesia. Um, it also starts there for me because that was the beginning of the Asian uh, financial crisis which hit many countries in Southeast Asia. I would like maybe set the scene very briefly of what Indonesia was like at the time, which is very different than it is today. Um, at the time, you had a president, President Suharto, which was in power for 32 years. Uh, there were three political parties. There are, there are, I think, 10 now. There was stability that multinational companies enjoyed for a long time. Uh, basic food supplies were stable. Then very quickly, uh, some financial crisis in Thailand put a stress test on most of the economies in Southeast Asia, particularly uh, Indonesia and other countries such as Korea, uh, which very quickly led to a depreciation in rupiah, which so went from 2,200 for one US dollar all the way down to maybe 16,500 very quickly. As a result, there was difficulties in uh, importing uh, goods, so there was a short supply of basic goods and so on then led to widespread um, demonstrations of university students throughout the country, particularly in Jakarta, uh, which uh, the pinnacle was um, in May 1998, where at least four students were shot and killed, and which led to riots throughout the city and other, and other parts of the country as well. That eventually led to the downfall of President Suharto, who was in power for 32 years. And as 
General Agus uh, mentioned earlier that the, the culture of needing a leader is very important here. And overnight, that leader quickly disappeared from the scene. So you had someone who was around for 32 years, lifetimes for some people, uh, who was gone the next day. Very quickly after that, um, there were some reforms put in place to move the country forward. Uh, I would think that one of the major reformers uh, at that time was the gentleman sitting here, uh, General Agus Wijoyo, who in 1998 began thinking about how to bring the military forces uh, out of their dual function, which so the military had a dual function, which was the defense, then also a social political role, which was involved in almost daily activities throughout the country, all the way down to the village level. Very quickly, uh, a few years with the leadership of Pa Agus, the military began reforms and then was uh, ready to leave parliament. And I say ready to leave parliament because the military and the police had factions inside parliament which held around 20 or so percent seats. So they were a very powerful force uh, inside parliament and uh, decision-making process there. So the parliament now is very different than it was then. Uh, by 2004, the military left the parliament and was able to build a professional uh, force. At that time, we had the first elections, first democratic elections since 1955. Uh, they weren't completely free and fair, but they were very good considering they haven't had elections since that long, uh, democratic elections. You had four, after that, you had four presidents in four years. To really think about that, four presidents in four years is of major changes going on. At the same time as that, you had, you had sectarian violence, uh, in many regions of the country, very unstable. At the time, people thought, as Professor Andy mentioned, that Indonesia would become Yugoslavia and break up into many different countries. It was, it was very close to that at some point. Uh, you had conflicts in, in Sulawesi and Poso, and then at the same time, you had um, the military removing itself from parliament at the same time of all these conflicts going on, which only in three years after the fall of Suharto, you had people thinking, well, maybe democracy is not the best system for us. If we have all these problems, we need a leader. So very shortly, people were thinking, should we go back to a system like Suharto? Um, and then luckily you had the first direct elections uh, in Indonesia, which brought in President Yudhoyono. At the same time, you had a few years earlier, you had decentralization. So prior to that, Jakarta, the central government from Jakarta, controlled almost everything in Indonesia. The local governments were just, just took orders from the central government. So that changed, so the process to, to do that is massive in a large country like this, in addition, in addition to being an archipelago. That has been a long process, a slow process, but has made great strides. And then you had direct elections with President Yudhoyono. He came in for 10 years, brought stability, and then you have President Widodo in 2014. And I think that's really important to remember since the reform started in uh, early 1998, only until 2014 did you have a first democratic presidential transition in the country's history. If you look back, you had President Sukarno, who then President Suharo came in under different circumstances. He wasn't elected at the time. And then finally, you have a democratic transition for the first time only five years ago. So I think that's important to really remember that only five years ago was the first time there's been a democratic transition. I'm not uh, Mr. 
glass half full. I'm not always positive, but I think in this case, I'm very pos uh, positive in what Indonesia had accomplished during a very difficult time when the odds were against them and a lot happened. Uh, we can go into what the issues are, what need to be done, but I think what Indonesia has accomplished in 21 years is incredible, and I think they can make the changes that are needed going forward. And there are many changes, and I think Pop Michael will highlight some of them, and I'm, I'm happy to take questions later on that, but I think that's it for now, and uh, I thank you for your attention, and also thank you for the esteemed panel here. Thank you. Thank you. Check. Thank you very much, uh, Sean. We uh, heard, you know, it, it, it's like deja vu to me to listen to your story because uh, I was uh, exactly in that period of time. So you mentioned about the situation in 1997-1999. Uh, you talk about the conflict and also uh, especially the transformation from authoritarian country into fully functioning, uh, functioning democracy. So thank you very much for that. Uh, we, we can talk about that more later on. And now <clears throat> I would like to invite the uh, the third speaker, uh, Michael Vadikiotis. Uh, uh, let me uh, read first the, the short CV, if you don't mind, Michael. Uh, uh, Michael got his uh, uh, PhD in Oxford University, and his interest into Indonesia is very strong, and he first came to Jakarta in 1987 uh, as a BBC correspondent, uh, and later served as Jakarta Bureau uh, Chief of Far Eastern Economic Review magazine. Uh, his interest in Indonesia became the main subject of his first book. So uh, Michael wrote a book uh, entitled Indonesian Politics Under Suharto in 1993. It's a very interesting uh, achievement. As a journalist and researcher, Michael has witnessed the long journey of Indonesia, apart from the fact that Indonesia has managed to transform itself from an authoritarian into a democracy. Uh, Michael views that uh, there have been setbacks. And in his word, we are entering a danger zone. That's what uh, he's, he said. Uh, in the next five minutes, Michael will share his concerns and certainly also uh, the way how to deal with that situation. So, Michael, your five or ten minutes start now. Please give a round of applause to Michael. <clears throat> Thank you, Paati. Um, and uh, indeed, I, I was asked to talk about um, the challenges of strengthening democracy. And I feel that we all share this burden at the moment in the world of trying to uh, understand the challenges that uh, our democratic systems or not so democratic systems face. And I, I lived and grew up in the United Kingdom where of course there is a crisis at the moment regarding institutions of uh, political uh, debate and uh, institutions of government regarding the Brexit crisis. So I think you know, we should all look at this in a, in a comparative sense because one of the most pressing concerns of our age is how to protect and preserve the fundamentals of the democratic system of government. And for, long, for a very long time, nations in this part of the world and elsewhere have struggled to establish and nurture democracy. But now that this transition, as we've heard earlier, and, and reform movement has occurred, and with all the loss and the pain and struggle involved, I think the challenge today is how to prevent backslide and regression. As Paagus uh, has just said, we are still in transition in Indonesia as Indonesia tries to move from being, as he put it, and I think it's a very good word, from moving from a procedural democracy to a substantive democracy. As I see it, there are two distinct challenges. The first, which is of course a problem that plagues the entire world, 
is, of course, growing inequality. The second, related to that, is the rise of identity politics. First, a little bit of history, because I, when I spoke to the Congress last year in Bali, I spoke of the importance of understanding and protecting um, a knowledge of history. Um, Indonesia, of course, and I think many people don't often recognize or remember that Indonesia was established as a democracy in 1945. The founders of the Republic of Indonesia envisaged a unified nation of diverse elements of society with equal rights governed by an elected leader. It was not established as an authoritarian state. And many people from around the world, of course, look up to the history of Indonesia as it was established by a struggle against colonialism. This idealistic vision proved very hard to establish as in the early years of the Republic were marred by divisive politics, fractious ideology, and revolt. Faced with the threat of disintegration in the 1960s, authoritarian tendencies prevailed and the army stepped in to impose order. There followed three decades, as we've heard, of strong leadership backed by military power. And Indonesia's economy grew, society developed, but people yearned for more freedom. Abuses of power and rising levels of nepotism and corruption weakened the government, which fell after a short but violent expression of protest in 1998. Now, there's followed 20 years of transition, we like to call it transition, I'm not always comfortable with that term, and reform. The three key reforms were, in my view, free speech and respect for human rights, decentralization and local autonomy, and crucially, the direct election of the president. These reforms have underpinned the restoration of democratic government in Indonesia. However, over the last few years, there's been a few setbacks, and many people now believe that there is a risk of regression, democratic regression. And one reason for the setback stems from the success of Indonesia's democracy itself. Competitive politics has become well-established, as we've heard. We've had elected presidents every five years, or, election, or presidents who are re-elected. And regular elections are held at all levels of representation. The problem is that politicians seeking to be elected have resorted to exploiting aspects of race and religion in order to look for votes. This in turn has unfortunately polarized society and generated fear of conflict. And this fear has started to erode trust in Indonesia's democracy. So it's a vicious cycle. The more that politicians seek to look for votes used on the basis of race and religion, the more that people feel destabilized and fear that they need to have security and order imposed to prevent society from disintegrating. This was very much the feeling at the last election in April, where the country was rather polarized at the, at the ballot box. Yes, President Joko Widodo, Widodo won uh, a plurality of votes, but it was a slim margin and the opposition won in many areas using Islam as a basis for their appeal for votes. Of course, that's exactly what happened in the mid-1960s after religious and ideological polarization divided the country. And that's why I argue that in, in some senses we're entering 
a dangerous period again in Indonesia. There are other risks as well. Political parties, as we heard, have failed to develop constructive programs and have little sense of direction. The parliament is widely regarded as corrupt and unrepresentative. That's why over the last few weeks we've seen very intensive rounds of student demonstrations. The army and the police are competing for primacy in the security sector and religious zealots and conservatives seek to derail Indonesia's pluralistic and tolerant society. These are, I think, the dangers. So how to strengthen and protect Indonesia's democracy? Perhaps we should take note of the challenge faced by democracies everywhere. Growing social divides and income inequality has generated disillusionment with elected governments, which are viewed as being dominated by privileged elites, unresponsive to people's needs. And many people have taken refuge in religious belief, and some have become susceptible to idealistic visions of exclusive orthodoxy and notions of identity based on tribe, religion, and race. This is not unfamiliar to many of you from the countries that you come from. But Indonesia, with its large and diverse population, must avoid pitfalls, the pitfalls and the risks of descent, a descent into polarizing violent conflict that will divide the country. So let me end with just a few ways, five ways in fact, that I think that the Indonesian democracy can be protected. First, promote a culture of dialogue. Dialogue is not a panacea, it's a start, it's a beginning. All too often, differences are viewed through the prism of the threat to established authority. And so it's very important that differences should be channeled through constructive dialogue to modify positions and interests to bridge divides. Second, address social and economic inequality. To strive for a fair share of wealth and income helps impart the fruits of democratic government. To see the social and economic divide widen is to invite protest and disorder that leads, above all, to the abuse of power. Therefore, steps are needed to spread the wealth and provide an effective path to social and economic mobility. This is not easy. No government finds this easy, especially in this part of the world. Thirdly, I think it's important to revise the notion of what the parliament does and to reform the way it does it. Indonesia has struggled to find the right balance between representation and leadership. Many Indonesians believe that enlightened and charismatic leadership is the key to democratic government. Bagus didn't write my speech, but I, I agree with him on this issue. We cannot, have, as he said, live without a king, without a leader. But it is important that leaders should be made accountable, however freely they are chosen or popular they are. And this means that the parliament has to be strong enough to credibly and responsibly hold leaders to account. Fourthly, it's important to regulate and monitor religious education and proselytization. The vision of Indonesia as a pluralistic nation in, of unity in diversity is under threat from visions of the state as dominantly and exclusively an Islamic state. This leads ultimately to the erosion of democratic freedoms as seen by the current debate over the criminal code in the parliament. And rather than battle over legislation, the real struggle, I think, is to control the extent to which people are brainwashed or hoodwinked by extremist or intolerant visions of society. 
back to the education system. And lastly, it's important to establish a vision of Indonesia based on the founding principles of the Republic. Indonesia's founding fathers in 1945 knew that the struggle for freedom needed to be anchored in a vision of a nation underpinned by principles that balanced the centrifugal ethnic and religious forces, the diversity in the, in the archipelago, with an overarching frame of togetherness, unity and diversity. This became hard when the state philosophy of Pancasila, as it's called, was hijacked for the purpose of concentrating power in the hands of the few, and it was treated as a mechanism for imposing conformity during the authoritarian period. So many people have memories of the state philosophy as a tool of imposing conformity rather than a philosophy that everyone should live by. But Panchasila remains an important tool for protecting democracy, and I think it must be revived and it must be restored. So those are my five suggestions for strengthening democracy in Indonesia, and I look forward to the discussion afterwards. Thank you. All right, thank you very much, uh, Pat Michael, for your very insightful uh, points. Uh, if I may repeat basically five points that you uh, offer as, a, as a, the thing that we can done, uh, be done, uh, promote the culture of dialogue. I think the first is the second is uh, addressing social and economic inequality. You also mentioned about revise and reform the parliament. And the fourth is re uh, regulate and monitor religious education and uh, proselytization, and also establish a vision of Indonesia based on the founding principles of the Republic. Thank you very much. And now the, we usually save the best for last, uh, Pa Siswo. <laughs> uh, but before, let me uh, also uh, read a little bit of the uh, CV of uh, Pa Siswo. Uh, pa Siswo is the head of policy analysis and development agency of. Uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Indonesia, and he's a senior Indonesian diplomat. And his latest overseas post, uh, I remember, is as the deputy chief mission of the Embassy of Indonesia in Berlin, uh, correct, Pat, as a DCM. And also, it was actually his second posting in Berlin, because I think your first posting was also in, in Bonn, uh, in Berlin back in 1992. As a serving diplomat with extensive international experience, uh, Pak Siswo uh, will be able to tell stories of democracy beyond Indonesia. Uh, so he's going to share our views on Asian countries, sorry, Asian century, democracy, and good governance. So Pak Siswo, the floor is yours. Big round of applause to Pak Siswo, please. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I am not Indonesianist because I am Indonesian. <laughs> but why we are here today? I think uh, you, if you look at the stage, you have Pat uh, Michaels, yeah, and uh, we also have uh, Professor Carroll, uh, Professor uh, Berkeley, Pat uh, Michaels. Yeah. Uh, what is the difference between you and them? Because you are young, and they are not young, <laughs> but they are Indonesianists. Yeah. They are Indonesianists. Michael, young forever. But Indonesianists, we need more Indonesianists from the younger generation because we need regeneration of Indonesianists as well. Yeah? Why? To help us to nurture our democracy, because the Indonesianists is like uh, someone who can see us objectively from outside. We see the, uh, the trees, they see the jungle, yeah? uh, more in the wider context in which from time to time we have dialogues and we know uh, that we need some improvement, just like what Michael has been saying so far. 
there's a danger, so now we are entering the, the danger zone and then we need to keep to be in, in vigilance all the time. So we need Indonesians. And we need more Indonesians, especially from young generation. And the context is also very different. And this is why uh, my presentation today is more on the context. The context of democracy that you uh, are going to be engaging with. So with the dawn of ASEAN century, global community must be prepared for the inevitable change of the rule-based global order. The order remains there, but the rule changes. Yeah. Why? As the economic power, and soon also political power as well, is shifting toward East Asia, including India, the rising power of East Asia, namely, among others, China, India, Indonesia, other ASEAN countries, Japan, and South Korea, will determine the outcome of new norm-setting process. New norm-setting process is something that you cannot avoid. From time to time, we have the rise and fall of the big powers, and with them, also the change of the rule of the game. Classical international relations theories, if you happen to study ER, in particular the realist paradigm, used to measure the power index from Morgenthau, nine elements of national powers. Geography, natural resources, industrial capacity, military preparedness, population, national characters, national morale, the quality of diplomacy, and the quality of government. This is Morgenthau. While Morgenthau uh, analysis remain valid, now we have also a more recent way to assess uh, national powers, like from Lowy Institute of Australia, for instance, referring to cultural influence. We have pop culture from Korea, for instance, military capability, resilience, future resources, and diplomatic influences. So it's a little bit different. All the rising powers in East Asia are endowed with most of these qualities, either Morgenthau's or uh, Louis Institute. And this particularly true with the economic power of Asia. East Asia, which is soon going to conclude RCEP, we are going to conclude RCEP soon, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, will become the largest, or is becoming the largest uh, economic bloc in the world. GDP combined, if you are talking about East Asia, we are talking about 27 trillion US dollars, the largest in the world. North America, NAFTA, we are talking about 23 trillion US dollars combined. Uh, European Union is 16 trillion. But the population is the determinant of the future. Here in East Asia, we have 3.5 billion people, and North America is half billion, and Euro European Union is also half billion aging. And here we have mostly young people, demographic bonus of Indonesia and India. So this will be uh, the important parameter in the shifting future of the rule of the game. Now, uh, more than that, East Asia also economically well integrated. The mantra here, your neighbor is your market. Messing around with your neighbor, messing around with your own market. So that's why we keep peace in East Asia for the last 50 years. If you compare with the situation perhaps in the Middle East, 
their neighbor is not necessarily their market. Saudi Arabia, for instance, the main trading partner of Saudi Arabia is China, not the neighboring countries of Egypt. Turkey is the main trading partner of Turkey, the European Union, not the neighboring countries of Syria, for instance. So we have a situation that how, when entrepreneurs, that's why we are going to talk about creative economy, the, the, the economic integration is also uh, a good element to maintain peace because everyone then has a self-restraint, not messing around with your neighbors. That means you're also going to mess around with your own market. But Asia is so diverse and it is not the West. This is, I think, one particular uh, things that we need to observe in the near future because the rise of Asia, then we have the new kind of democracy. In the West, uh, democracy cannot be uprooted from the very fundamental Western Christendom traditions, Habsburg Empire. But India, you, in here in Asia, you have the largest democracy like India, but also rooted in Hinduism. In Indonesia, we also, democracy is very young, but with a very large Muslim community, and we have the very old traditional Japanese democracy with Shintoism. So this will be the first time when we have the new order, global new order, in which democracy is not necessarily Western Christen, uh, Christendom democracy. Value is very important, but in here in Asia, we are talking more on more flexibility. See ASEAN. We have one single party in ASEAN, like Vietnam. We have Sharia uh, in, in Malaysia and Brunei. We have liberal democracy in the Philippines, but ASEAN are united. There is not such common value in ASEAN yet, but perhaps in the future, but we are united by the common interest in which the economy of Vietnam is so progressively engaged and also mingled with the economics of liberal democracy of, of the Philippines, for instance. And within ASEAN, we have 30% uh, intra-trade uh, of ASEAN. So I think, again, the point is that millennial generation that you are, you are born from 1980s until 2000, year 2000. So the oldest millennial will be about 40 years old now. The youngest one is about 19 years old. So 10 years from now, you are going to rule the world in the new global landscape. And this is East Asia, this is Africa, this is Latin America, beyond uh, the world that we know it so far as the source of our knowledge, Western Europe. So I think this is very important to have a new generation of Indonesianists that can advise us uh, on how things must be run in the new global context. China and India are civilizations that have been around for 5,000 years. So from time to time, we are asked a question like, how you perceive the rise of China? No, we have been dealing with China, it's not 100 years, we have been dealing with China for the last 2,000 years. That's why in the first generation of mosque in Indonesia, you can go to the mosque of the Ma. Yeah, for instance, this is the first mosque, when we have transitioned from Hinduism to Islam. You always find two characters in the mosque like that. Chinese characters and Arabic characters. So you can see how things are going. Most of the Muslim coming from southern part of China as well. So again, we have an old civilization of India and China for the last 5,000 years, which is much older than Western civilization. And this will be a context that we are going to see the rise of Asia. Now, in the next 10 years then, it is time for Asia to reach out to have more dialogues with Africa, Latin America, North America, 
and Europe and Oceania as well to see how the global landscape can have the new rule, but it's not unique to Asia, but we need to remain open so that everyone can contribute. Even the Western Europe can contribute what is the new rule uh, of the world will be. Yeah. That's why inclusiveness is very important. That's why democracy, the homegrown democracy of India, Indonesia, Japan, Korea, will be also important to assure that in the rise of Asia, everyone is being taken into consideration. So uh, this is the important to have all of you here. Now we have Bali Democracy Forums, soon coming this December, hopefully you, you can attend it. In the last 11 years, we have Bali Democracy Forum. What is Bali Democracy Forums? This is the anticipation of the rise of Asia. We are going to have Asian democracy. Democracy have uh, uh, universal values, but the implementation must be and always be local. It's just like if you would like to uh, plant apple from Europe, you take the, the seed of the apple, but not the land of Europe, and plant it here, and the apple will grow in ASEAN soil. So this is the ASEAN democracy. The idea can be taken from everywhere, but localized into uh, our custom and traditions. This is true for Japan, this is true for Indonesia, this is true for India as well. And Biodiversity is everything. So biodiversity and politics and democracy are also very important. And we are reach, reaching that stage now in which democracy is not necessarily the West, but with the rise of Asia, we have the good governance and democracy with some universal value, but also local implementation. So hopefully that uh, you can also attend the Bali Democracy Forum in which every ASEAN countries, European countries, Oceanians, and Africa has a free uh, time to really air what, what their view about democracy and what the best exper experiment and experience of democracy you have in Asia, in Africa, in Oceania, and Latin America as well. So again, uh, I think this is the important to have you here as the millennial Indonesianist. Uh, hopefully we can learn a lot from the real Indonesianist that is going to share with us their view today. And I do really hope that one day you can decide that you will be Indonesianist like thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Fasiswa. I think you uh, wrap up with nicely. Uh, uh, one small note that I think uh, I remember is that we can learn from anywhere, but basically we need to localize and adapt the value to be uh, suitable for our region. I think that's a, a very good point that you made. Now I just open the question and answer to the floor because we have until 10.40 that I was reminded by the master ceremony. Any question? Wow, 200 questions already. Uh, can, <laughs> all right. Okay, thank you. And state your name, please. Thank you. Okay, good morning. Uh, my name is Momodo Salih So I am from the Republic of Gambia and a postgraduate student at the University of Brawijaya. Uh, my question is for Pa Wijojo. Uh, during the democratic transition phase, what, are, what were some of the major challenges uh, in separating the role of the military to focus purely on defense and give way uh, for civilian politics? What were some of the major challenges and how were these challenges overcome? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll tell you later. Uh, yes, the second one. Can, it, can I count first? One, two, three. <laughs> So, one, two, three. Yes, please. Sir? Ada di belakang, Pak. 
Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Walid from University of Muhammadiyah. Uh, my question for the first one, uh, what is the impact to Indonesia to combine qualitative and quantitative methods in analyzing local politics and emphasize the importance of a citizen-led approach local democracy? Yes, thank you very much. Now the third one, if I may. One, two, three. Okay, thanks for the time. Uh, in these sessions, I want to ask to Mr. Agus about how do you deal with the problems of democracy that are always associated with religions? Thank you. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Democracy, thank you very much. I think I will not repeat the question. I'll just uh, let you answer. I, I might address the question on citizen-led democracy, uh, which is a very good question. Uh, and it refers to what I think both Agus and, Agus and I were uh, mentioning, which is the tendency of people to rely on their leaders too much. I believe that, and maybe Sean has a view on this as well, that actually the uh, citizen-led uh, democracy is, going to, is increasingly uh, emerging because of the availability of uh, technology um, that connects communities more easily uh, to government and to individuals. So I see emerging in Southeast Asia, where we live, in Indonesia and the countries that I visit, such as Thailand, Cambodia, uh, Myanmar, um, that increasingly the uh, ability of people to connect to one another uh, and discuss or have access to information uh, about critical issues that affect them is promoting a citizen-led democracy. Now, we hear a lot about the problems of social media generating polarization, uh, hate speech, but I think sometimes we have to appreciate also the, the positive side of being connected uh, through mobile phones, through social media platforms, is that I know of people, for instance, who use these platforms uh, in fishing communities to have better access to information and to be able to uh, have uh, an ability to communicate to local governments their needs. And so I think technology for me is the key to enabling more citizen-led democracy. Thank you very much. Bagus, uh, you want to answer straight away to the, the first and the last question? Okay. Please, thank you. Uh, Thank you. Uh, I think I have two questions addressed to me. The first one is, what are the challenges when the military withdrew from uh, its uh, political role? Is that it? Okay. Uh, the challenges, uh, because for Indonesia, it was not a planned change. It was a situation where we have to take of a sudden opportunity and where practically the nation and the political elites were taken by surprise. There were no indicators and signs where President Suharto intended to resign. Uh, so it was a, a matter of taking an opportunity. And uh, with that, uh, I think, uh, but because that it was a self-initiated reform by the military, and with least, uh, least intervention 
from the push and pull of political interest, uh, it was relatively easy for the military, for they know what is to be reformed, what are to be reformed, uh, to prepare themselves for the incoming full-blown democracy, and what are the static uh, values uh, that we have to retain within the military. Uh, so uh, that is one. Secondly, and I think this is universal, uh, and we did not have much time for that, and that is to prepare the effectiveness of those replacing institutions who uh, in the aftermath or uh, in the following sequence will take over the roles uh, of the military uh, where it was in the past uh, was uh, done or conducted by the military. And uh, I think that would also uh, enter the general challenges of a new democracy. How to uh, establish an effective uh, civilian political authority. And, uh, and I think uh, that is uh, what we call uh, the real meaning of transition. And until now, the, uh, actually, we are still seeing uh, or waiting for uh, uh, an effective uh, civilian uh, political authority. Or uh, is that uh, a new uh, challenge that we are facing that that is just the characteristics of a democracy? that democracy never promises a final situation where uh, they will, uh, or democracy provides the answer. It will be a continuous process, uh, and democracy is a process-oriented uh, system where, uh, again, culture, uh, our culture are always looking for results for uh, the final situation. So I think uh, other than structural challenges, there are also cultural challenges that we have to face to make ourselves familiar with the characteristics and the culture of democracy. Thank you for the question. Uh, the question is uh, the uh, differences of values uh, implied in democracy versus uh, religion, uh, is that it? Uh, then I would say that would be a subject to be decided by the nation, by the people itself. And that is to, uh, to develop, uh, to feel what is really the relationship between the state and religion. Because in religion, we have absolute truth uh, for uh, those people who really are abide by the rules of specific religion. Those absolute truths cannot be discussed with other religions. Uh, what exists between religions and people who uh, adhere to different religions is respect. Uh, while as uh, in the society, we have the relative truth where everything can be discussed and where people can have different opinions uh, uh, in a common room, in a common ground. In religion, we don't have a common ground. So it's not too mixed between one religion and the other. It is not too mixed also between the absolute truth and relative truth, but to draw the line where the absolute truth has to be retained in that room. And that uh, when, uh, when we go to, out to the society, we will be facing relative truth where everything can be discussed except the absolute truth. So I think uh, it is those disciplines that we have to uh, establish uh, as rules of the game. And it is again uh, by, 
by the uh, consensus of the people. But right now, we have also uh, we are also seeing that, or I put it in a, uh, in a question uh, form of sentence: Is there really uh, is there really a political arrangement that is free from religious values? I don't think there is, uh, because even in uh, America, even in the U.S., there are. Uh, recommendations, there are uh, influences of religious values which are tried uh, to be inserted as part of the constitutional content uh, of a state. Uh, for instance, abortion, for instance, LGBT. So uh, there is always a way, as long as if you want to insert those religious values into the uh, worldly or state arrangement it has to be done by the principles of democracy and not by forcing or uh, putting pressures uh, on other people. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sure. Uh, Sean, if you want to add something, please. Right. Thank you. I just wanted to respond to the, the gentleman's question in the back and a follow-up to General August. I think uh, looking back at the opportunity, as August mentioned, of having the military remove itself from parliament or from the dual function uh, that they've had for, I think, around 50 years, uh, I think it's, it can't be overstated how important that was and how difficult it was and how Paagos took advantage of that opportunity and was a driving force of making that happen. And I recall very clearly at the time of people saying, there's no way that the military was going to leave the military and the police faction would leave parliament. It's not in their interest. They've been there for 50 years. Uh, they have a lot of power. Why would they ever give that up? It's not going to happen. Uh, eventually, they did in less than, I think, what, four years, five years? Uh, very quickly, in a period where they've been there for 50 years. And also, the fact that you had the lawmakers who were, weren't exactly an independent thinking body. Um, you had the lawmakers who, who were elected. And then you had the TNI and police faction. But when the military left, that sort of left the vacuum of, you know, they're on their own now to, to run the parliament. And I just think it cannot be overstated, and people thought it would not happen. People even at the time thought that President Suharto would come back because of the chaos, the violence of things happening. And if you look at countries such as Myanmar, who the military has, I think, 25% of the seats in parliament um, since the reform process started there, um, maybe back in 2011, 2012, uh, there's no plans right now for the military to leave parliament. And I think what has been done by the military, I think, should be praised. And I think it was a very difficult time and a very courageous move. And it's a very important move that changed the direction and also democracy in Indonesia. Thank you very much, Sean. Uh, Pasiso, please. Perhaps a little bit more on citizen-led approach to democracy. I think this is the most ideal one. All democracy should be citizen-led, actually. Uh, to reach that quality, then we need at least two uh, elements. The first one is participation. Uh, in the case of Indonesia, we have the number of turn up about 80% of the uh, eligible voters. So this is, this is a good one. Uh, the last previous uh, general election is about 74 now we have 80, so I think this is a good one. But turn up or participation is not enough. What we need is also uh, political education, and that's what uh, Michael has been concerned about. Yeah? 
and political education is supposed to be the main job of political parties. Yeah? Political party is not, uh, should not only engage on the power struggle, but also the most important things on uh, political education. Now, when political party uh, more and more involved in the identity politics, uh, religious matters that like have been mentioned, this is, this is not a good political education. Yeah. So uh, political parties, uh, universities, and uh, is the place that debate like this can be organized and more often, yeah, because face-to-face -face, uh, debate on matters dealing with politics will help you to, to come into more political maturity. Political maturity is very important. Then you can see which one is the hoax, uh, which one is actually uh, propaganda. Yeah. And what we need is not only political knowledge, but political maturity. And this can only be, be attained by having more debate on various matters and, and, and democracy like the one we have today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pa Siswa. Um, once again, I was reminded by the organizer to keep the time uh, sharp. Um, I will give one more question, if I may. Wow, 300 questions already, yeah? All right. Um, in the front, please, sir. Yes, you. So, First of all, uh, I am from Myanmar. I am studying at UGM and also study at uh, Chiang Mai University. Uh, my question is uh, how, uh, what are the most challenges for the uh, traditional institution for the democracy? The challenges of traditional institution traditional. to transform into a democracy. Traditional. Yes. Yeah. Uh, do you have any specific uh, example or explanation? For, about uh, for example, the religion. So in the religion, uh, Islamic, uh, you, have to, you have to keep a very old uh, traditional to main, right? But on the other hand, the, the democracy, you have to practice in very modernized and you also have to consider about human rights and also other the civil rights as well. It's, it goes to the heart of the challenges that we, one of the main challenges we've been talking about. And it affects, I think, uh, your country in Myanmar as much as it affects uh, Indonesia, where you have traditions. It, it, I mean, religion, in the, in the, we don't just mean in the sense of dogma, but in the way that religion um, influences society. And of course, you know, in the, in the Buddhist tradition in Myanmar, as well as in the Muslim tradition in Indonesia, uh, there are strong uh, links to society and that the way that society is uh, affected by uh, religious beliefs. I think one of the main problems we have seen over the last 30 years is not to do with the relationship between religion and democracy and rights, but the extent to which people's beliefs have changed because of the challenges they face every day. So um, to give you an example, uh, I actually conducted a dialogue um, with senior uh, Buddhist monks from around Southeast Asia a few years ago. And I asked them, this was in relation to what was happening in uh, a kind state vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Muslims uh, uh, who live there. I said, what, what is your problem with Muslims? And they said, historically we have no problem with Muslims, uh, but Muslims have changed they have become more exclusive. 
And I think that what we have seen uh, in many societies is that as religious belief becomes more uh, exclusive or there is more piety and orthodoxy, people start to think that they should protect the boundaries uh, between different religions. And so you see in Indonesia, uh, you never had a problem in many towns and villages where you had mosques and churches in the same place. But there have been more disputes in Indonesia over whether or not the church has a right to exist next to a mosque uh, because people are creating divisions uh, between the religions because they are, are taught, unfortunately, that religious belief is more exclusive. Uh, and, and this, I think, erodes degrees of tolerance. So I think it's easy to blame the politicians uh, because they have used religion and they have helped contribute to this. But I think also worldwide, we've obviously seen uh, a rise in religious orthodoxy and belief, which is probably a reflection of insecurity more than anything else. The fear uh, of whether it's social and economic factors, but also the fear of the other. Um, as we've seen in Myanmar, and also political manipulation. So it's a mixture of these factors that makes it very difficult to get to your question, to actually make the institutions um, of democracy, uh, whether it's the parliament, whether it's political parties, whether it's the way in which politicians conduct themselves, it, it suggests that there need to be stricter rules, uh, regulations, to prevent this polarization, to prevent hate speech, to prevent uh, the divisions that occur between uh, religions. And I will say lastly, it is a serious problem in Southeast Asia because this is a part of the world where people of different religions live very close together, uh, in the same town, in the same village, in the same community. You know, in the Middle East and in many other parts of the world, people live in separate communities. But in this part of the world, people live very closely together. So it's a very critical issue, and you're right to raise it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, yes uh, I would like to contribute uh, to answer uh, this question. Uh, the question was uh, how to accommodate between local values, local wisdom, and uh, the values of democracy. Is that it? Okay. Uh, first of all is that, like Indonesia, uh, became from a traditional society, and uh, we inherit many values, many practices from the past, where it was possible to practice it in the full meaning uh, of those values. Then, uh, to enter into a modern democratic Indonesia, our challenge is to try to really, uh, to redraw the principles and the intrinsic values uh, of those values uh, to try to find the instrumental values, uh, the the revalue uh, of the past to be implemented into a Indonesia who has already changed into a modern and democratic country. So uh, that is uh, the first challenge in general. But there are instances where uh, also uh, there are components uh, of the society where we cannot integrate uh, everything all at once. So maybe there is a gradual process before we adopt an inclusive democracy. For instance, the tribes of Papua. Uh, we just cannot involve them into an inclusive democracy in our general election. 
we cannot go to them and practice one man, one vote. So specifically with the Papuan tribes, we ask the leader of the tribe, what are your preferences? How do you vote? How, uh, what would you like to cast your vote? But this is actually a temporary, although a strategic temporary case, strategic temporary situation before in the end that we can uh, accommodate them into an Indonesian inclusive national democracy. Uh, that is uh, the second part. But also we have instances or examples in the world of how to uh, desegregate or segregate or divide between tradition, traditional values and democracy. Uh, and that is more like, uh, for instance, in uh, constitutional monarchy. Uh, Japan, for instance, they are able to retain and uh, maintain their traditional values very, very well, while all at once, at the same time, they practice democracy in their political, uh, in their political arrangements. So there is a line to be drawn between traditional values and uh, principles of democracy in the domain where it is a competition uh, for uh, political power uh, through constitutional arrangements. Although that the two cannot be mixed uh, between one and the other. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, just because of the time, I need to wrap up. Uh, we have heard from uh, Pagus, for example, uh, uh, as a, someone who was in the inner circle of the of the process, but when uh, Indonesia was transforming itself from an authoritarian into a fully functioning democracy. So thank you very much for your insight. Uh, of course, there were challenges that uh, can be a uh, lesson learned uh, nowadays. Uh, Sean uh, viewed uh, the same situation, but probably from the outsider. Uh, uh, be, uh, I hope it's, it's more, uh, you know, it's better somehow to see that. And uh, you noted that Indonesia has done a good job in the transformation. Uh, that's uh, one point. And, and Michael, on the other hand, uh, came up with the views that there are setbacks, but he uh, did not stop there. He offers the uh, five points how to deal with, uh, with that setbacks. Pak uh, Siswo, uh, we also heard that Pak uh, Siswo went beyond Indonesia. Democracy always has its regional context, that's what I understand. <clears throat> so the dynamics in Asia, for example, uh, has always to be uh, taken into account uh, when we talk about democracy in Indonesia. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, I will not analyze or conclude, but uh, allow me to take one lesson learned. Uh, Marcel Proust once put that the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscape, but in having new eyes. So I think uh, the four speakers uh, have been very kind to lend their eyes uh, so that now we can see uh, the democracy of Indonesia better. Uh, I hope everybody is happy but not satisfied. Uh, if you are satisfied, you will stop searching. Uh, that is not what we are for, so please keep searching and uh, help me to uh, thank them to be a round of applause to four of the speakers. Thank you very much, uh, Pa Agus, Sean, Michael, and Pa Siswa. Thank you. This was a special live episode of Indonesia In-Depth. We hope you found this episode useful. Special thanks to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for inviting us and to Lieutenant General Agus Wijoyo, Dr. Michael Vatikiotis, Dr. Siswo Pramono, and Sean Corrigan. If you would like us to release more of live edition episodes, let us know at info at I'm Veronica. 
Thank you for listening. Saya memutuskan untuk menyatakan berhenti dari jabatan saya sebagai Presiden Republik Indonesia terhitung sejak saya batalkan pernyataan ini pada hari ini, Kamis 21 Mei 1998.